We are on a journey through Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're looking at a portion of the scripture that we read today. We're not going to look at the whole thing because we've covered much of it, but I want us to be able to continue to, uh, you know, be reminded of the context. Uh, But today we're going to look specifically about what it means to uh, Christ is the reconciler. And, and we're told that in uh, verses 19 through 23 that we read in the larger reading. But let me just remind you really quickly, previously we looked at that great statement by Paul regarding the true and full identity of Jesus. Remember in verses 15 through 18, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And, and right on down through that. Now that has been referred to as uh, some people have, have taken that portion of scripture and, and said, this is, a, uh, a, this is a, a description of the cosmic Christ. And I remember reading a book years ago by Thomas Cahill. He's the author of uh, such books as How the Irish Saved Civilization. And uh, one of his books is called Desire of the Everlasting Hills. And that's a book that's about the life and person and ministry of Jesus. And in one chapter, um, he's talking about the, what Jesus was from Paul's point of view, and he entitled the chapter The Cosmic Christ. And I remember years ago reading that thinking, wow, that, I, I like that, The Cosmic Christ. But the idea there is that he is the, the Lord over the cosmos. He's the Lord over all things. And of course, that's what Paul is saying in those passages, verses 15 through 18. But Paul goes on to tell us that Christ is also the one through whom God has reconciled his estranged creation, including his estranged children. And that's the focus of verses 19 through 23. So let me just read them again, and then we're going to jump in and look at this whole idea of reconciliation. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so here in in the passage, again, we want to emphasize just this whole uh, idea of reconciliation. In the passage, we have the what, who, how, and why of Christ's work of reconciliation. The what, who, how, and why. So that's how we're going to break it down. We want to look at the work of Christ in reconciling all things really to God, but we want to break it down in that way. Now, before we do that, let me give you just a quick definition. So the word reconcile, I mean, it's a word that we're fairly familiar with. You don't use it every day necessarily, but you know, it's, it's a word that we know. And in English, the word simply means to restore a friendship or to restore uh, a relationship to harmony, a relationship that's been fractured, a relationship that's been strained in some way. So a reconciliation is when two parties that have been uh, you know, separated from one another are brought back together. 
That's the, the meaning of the English word. The Greek word translated reconciliation basically means the same thing, but it can also um, be understood to speak of the removal of all hostility as to leave no obstacle to unity and peace. So in Christ's reconciling work, he has removed all hostility. Now, remember, we, we read the words here, enemy. Now, enemies have hostility toward one another. That's kind of the nature of, of an enemy or being uh, at enmity with someone, right? Well, the reconciliation is that all of that hostility has been removed and every obstacle has been taken out of the way that would prevent unity and peace. And so that's what Jesus has done. He has reconciled us to God. But, but let's start with just the, the what he reconciled. Now, Paul begins with this larger picture. He says that all things on earth and in heaven have been reconciled by Christ. All things on earth and in heaven. Now, here he's talking about, again, the universe, the idea, uh, you know, the, the cosmic Christ. He's Lord over the entire universe. And somehow, in ways that we don't fully understand, the unity and harmony of the cosmos has, through sin and rebellion, suffered a rupture. A dislocation has occurred that must be put right again. Now, the, the Bible hints at this. Um, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that speaks of the necessity of heavenly things being purified, and they were purified by the blood of Christ. Now, you wonder, like, what? How, how could heavenly things need to be purified? We understand how things on earth would need to be purified, but... Um, but the, the things on earth, it says, are copies of the things in heaven, and the things in heaven were purified by a greater sacrifice. The author is talking about the sacrifice of Christ. How, how would heaven need to be purified? Uh, well, we don't know exactly, but we do know that from the time of the, the rebellion and the fall of uh, the devil, you know, Satan, uh, we sometimes refer to him as Lucifer, um, from that time, we know that there was a, a, a defilement that took place in the heavens. We, we know, not perfectly, but we know to some sense that um, we know there was a great revolt that this person we call the devil led, and we surmise that a third of the um, angelic host followed him in his rebellion. And we see in a number of passages as we read through the Bible, we see a number of times where he, even though fallen, even though rebellious, even though um, in his position of resisting God, we see that he still has access to the presence of God. We see that in the book of Job. We see that in uh, the book of Jeremiah. We even have it hinted to in the book of Revelation. So the presence of the evil one would then, I think, obviously, it would bring some sense of defilement. But what Jesus did through his reconciling work and what he will ultimately do 
is he will reconcile all things. So all of those things that need to be put right, he will put them right. And that includes um, the things that we can't see, the invisible world. It includes the things that we can see. It includes all of creation. So the Bible teaches that creation is presently in a, a state of anticipation of being delivered from the bondage of corruption. Romans chapter eight teaches us that, that creation itself is, um, is groaning. Uh, verses 19 through 22 of Romans eight, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. For the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So you see that here, the bondage to decay. And then he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So all of the created order is groaning and longing for this day when this um, bondage to decay or bondage to corruption when this is no longer the case. Now, Jesus has laid the foundation for that to be um, the, the, the reality for creation, but the full implementation of it has not happened yet. It will happen when the Lord returns. But when he says that he's reconciled all things, those are the things that he's talking about. So nature itself, I mean, think of nature for a second, how amazing nature is. Think of how beautiful, uh, you know, various aspects of nature are. And yet we know that nature is currently, presently under a curse. But one day that curse is going to be lifted. And that's part of the reconciliation that Paul's talking about. So what has he reconciled? He's reconciled all things on earth and in heaven. Who has he reconciled? And now this is more specific and more personal. He has reconciled those who were alienated and enemies and showing their alienation and their enmity by their lifestyle, by their behavior, by their wicked works. Now, remember, Paul's writing this to the Colossians. The Colossians are uh, people who are unfamiliar with uh, the God of Israel, they're unfamiliar with the Jewish people in, in the sense of their covenant, they're outside of that, they're idolaters, they're, they're people who are given over to uh, following the dictates of their own heart, they're people who would be involved in all kinds of vile and, and wicked practices. Uh, but the Colossians weren't alone in that, they're, they're uh, neighbors, they're close by uh, community of the Ephesians, they were in the same situation. And Paul says almost identical words to the Ephesians. But the truth is, it wasn't just the Colossians or the Ephesians, it's everybody. You see, what's being described here is the condition of every single person by nature. Every person by nature is alienated and enemies of God engaged and involved in wicked works, things that are an affront and an offense to God. That's every human being. Now, that is not a message that people want to hear, is it? You know, you, sometimes 
it can be so perplexing. You wonder, why are people so upset when you mention the name of Jesus? Why, why are there so many who are, are so hostile toward Jesus Christ? I mean, when you just read through the pages of the New Testament, you find the, the greatest man that ever lived, the most uh, kind and, and caring and, and loving and considerate and, and patient and helpful. And, you know, all of those things, you, you look at Jesus and you think, how could anybody be so hateful toward Jesus? But you don't have to go far in this world to find people who just have this deep-seated hatred for Jesus. Why is that? What is that? Well, Jesus himself told us what it was. He said, the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. And man, that is it right there, isn't it? Because none of us, nobody likes to be told that they are wicked. Nobody wants to be told that they are sinful. That is something that goes against the grain of my pride as a human being. You can say a lot of things, but don't you, know, don't you dare uh, tell me that I'm not a good person. Don't tell me that I'm, I'm not worthy. Don't, don't tell me those things. That, that is something that man just recoils. The, the doctrine of total depravity, meaning that we are so sinful that we could never save ourselves. We have to have somebody outside save us. That, of course, would be the Lord. Uh, that is a doctrine that is pushed back on, uh, has always been pushed back on, but it is, um, in, in our day and age, it is very much a doctrine that is resisted opposed and rejected. But like I said, it's not, um, it, it's not just today that people feel this way. Back in the uh, 1700s, uh, there, there was a well-known preacher in those days uh, in England, but also here in the colonies. Uh, his name was George Whitfield. And, and George Whitfield had a woman who was, uh, she was, she was a dear friend. She was a wealthy uh, aristocratic woman, and she would support Whitfield's ministry. And she, you know, being part of the aristocracy was unusual for somebody to have that deep kind of evangelical faith like she did. But she had a burden, and she wanted her friends to come to know Christ as well. So on one occasion, when George Whitfield was in town and he was going to be preaching, she invited uh, this woman. Her name was, or she was known as Lady uh, Huntingdon. Um, she invited her friend, the Duchess of Buckingham, to come and hear George Whitfield preach. And this is the Duchess's reply to her. She said, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. So in other words, she just said, I don't, I don't know how you listen to this man. He actually talks to us and tells us that we're sinners. He tells us that we're just like everybody else. Now, notice what she's saying. She's not saying that there aren't people who are sinners. She's saying, but we're not. Because we are, as as she put it here, interestingly, we are of high rank and good breeding. 
You know, and it's the same thing that we would have today. Some people, now they're willing to concede that there are certain people in the culture that are sinners, but they're not part of that. And, you know, they have their, their different people that they would look at and say, well, yes, I understand that person's a sinner or whatever. And, you know, they need help, but, but don't put me in that category. I'm different. See, this is, this is human nature. This is our um, rebellion against um, what God has to say about us. But, but what God says is that we are alienated and we are enemies by our wicked works. So this is our natural condition. But here is the amazing thing. Notice he says to them, he says, you once were this. So they're no longer that. How did they go from being alienated and enemies to being the people of God, the beloved of God? Well, that happened because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the great hymn that we have sung, all of us have sung it, um, Amazing Grace. And, and of course, it's not uh, it's not that 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 hymn is so well known. It's not even limited to being sung by church people. You know, they sing it in pubs, they sing it at uh, sporting events. Uh, you know, certain musicians over the years who had no particular faith in Christ. Uh, it, you know, it's just one of those classic songs. So, so many people have sung it. But but think about the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, you know, if you walked up to somebody and called them a wretch, that is not a compliment. Uh, that is not anything that anyone's going to be real happy about. And very few people want to admit that I am a wretch. But that's what the lyrics to the song say. But remember who wrote the song. And maybe you don't even know who wrote the song. Well, it was written by a man named John Newton. John Newton became an, Anglic an, an Anglican priest uh, later on in life. He became a pastor over a church. Um, but as a younger man, he was a ship owner and he was a slave trader. And he would bring slaves from the western coast of Africa. He would transport them to England and he would sell them. And along the way, many of them would die. They would be in the most horrific uh, conditions imaginable. And, and, you know, he did all of this for profit. But there came a moment where he was converted. There came a moment when he was saved. And when he would think back on that uh, time in his life and on those things that he was involved in, his conclusion was a wretch. I am a wretch. But what is he saying? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so we, we have to always remember that the gospel is for those who are alienated and enemies and engaging in wicked works. That's who Jesus came to reconcile to God. That's who all of us were to some degree or another. And we, when we think about God's goodness toward us in reconciling this group of people to himself, 
we stand amazed and we heartily join in to the chorus with Newton and others. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So he has um, reconciled those who were alienated and enemies. How did he reconcile us? Well, we're told here through the blood of his cross and secondly, in the body of his flesh through death. So this is how the reconciliation was accomplished. It was through the blood of his cross. And it was through his death. It was through the body of his flesh. Jesus, he reconciled us to God by paying with his own blood the penalty for the sins that had alienated us from God. So this is, this is the gospel. This is uh, atonement. This is Christ being our substitute. He gave his life in exchange for us. Jesus said it himself. He said, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom. He paid the price. You see, sin, uh, there's a penalty to sin. You know, some people ask the question, many times people will ask this, you know, why did there have to be like this payment that was made? Why didn't God just forgive sin? Why couldn't he just say, okay, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that, but let's just get a fresh start. But you know, if you think about it, there's always, when it comes to forgiveness, there's no way around some form of suffering. There ha there, if, if anybody's ever going to forgive anyone of anything, there, there's going to be some suffering that's involved. So if, let's just say, you know, I sinned against you. I did something grievous against you. And, and then I came to you and I asked you to forgive me. Now you could, let's just say it was even criminal. I'm putting myself in a very bad light here, but uh, I wouldn't do that. But let's just say for argument's sake, it was. It, it was even criminal. Um, and and you, you, had, you had two choices in one sense. You could say, no, I'm gonna go to the law and, and you know, this is gonna be uh, brought before a judge and the, the full uh, punishment for what you did is going to be meted out on you. I, that, that is, that's what I'm going to press for. Or you could say, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to forgive that. Now, in either case, there's going to be suffering. I might suffer as a result because you press charges and that suffering brings you satisfaction. Okay, he got what he deserved. Or if you decided not to do that, guess what? You would have to suffer. You would have to suffer what? You would have to suffer the fact that I did those things and, and yet you forgave them, but there's pain in forgiving. That's a difficult thing. You're, you're taking a loss. You're bearing the brunt of all of that. So you see, when we say about God, like, well, why doesn't God just just forgive, there's no such thing as forgiveness without some form of suffering. And God being the just and righteous and holy God that he is, 
he requires that there be a penalty that is paid for the sins. But here's where the amazing love of God comes in. He steps in to pay the penalty himself. And that's what Jesus did. That's what, uh, that's what reconciliation is about. He removed the hostility. The hostility was the judgment that was due to our sins. He removed the hostility by bearing it himself. And so he did this through his death. Paul said something similar to the Ephesians. He said to them, he said, you who were once afar off, that's the idea of alienated, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is how we've been brought near to God. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now here's the big, big question. Why? Why did he do this? Why did he reconcile us? Now, he tells us in verse 22 that he reconciled us to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, or you could translate these uh, holy without blemish and free from accusation in his sight. Same, same idea, same thing. So, so this is why he did it. He did it so, in other words, he did it so he could have a relationship with us. You see, while we were unholy, while we were stained with sin, the relationship could not happen because God cannot have that intimate kind of a relationship with those who are steeped in and stained by their sin. So why did he do what he did? He did it so those things could be dealt with, those things could be removed, the unholiness could be changed to holiness, the, uh, the, the blame could be changed to blameless, and the reproach could be changed to unapproachable, and we could live in a close, intimate relationship with him now and forever. Everything is about relationship with God. Everything is about relationship with God. That we need to understand God that way. God is about relationship. Think of God in his very nature. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's triune. That means he lives in eternal relationship. And think about creation itself. You know, I mean, you know, think of the family. You know, you are here, I am here because of relationship, right? Our parents had a relationship. They got together. We were the byproduct of that. And all across creation, you see that everything is um, ordered, in, ordered relationally. And you see that in in obviously human relationships, but you know, if even if you look into the, the, the realm of nature, the animal kingdom and so forth, you know, isn't it amazing how even there you see these relational kinds of things? You see these, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you come across these things online where maybe, um, you know, I, I remember seeing like a, like a wildebeest that was out on its own and some lions were ready to pounce on it and attack it. And they, they actually did. And then a whole herd of wildebeest came and drove the lions off and 
got their friend up and took him back into the herd. You know, and you think, wow, that, that's amazing. That's amazing relational stuff. Or sometimes maybe like elephants, you see them doing something communally. Uh, you know, even with animals, you, you see these relational kinds of things. But of course, so much more with, with human beings. But all of that is indicative of the fact that God is relational. And God's purpose in reconciliation was bringing us into this relationship that he longs to have with us. It's all about relationship. God is about relationships. He's about a relationship with you and with me, and he's about us having relationships with one another. And you know, think about it. Relationships are what make life worth living, aren't they? You know, just the the relationships that we have. Now, obviously, we have uh, problems in relationships. We have divisions. We have all of those kinds of things. But ideally speaking, I mean, sometimes you think, wow, what's it going to be like when we have a world where there's no strife in relationships? When we have a world where everything is relationally just the way it should be, that is going to be so amazing. So last week, Cheryl and I took a day. We, uh, we drove up the coast a little bit. Um, and there, there's a restaurant that we like up there. But we went to check out something that um, we had to look at. So, so we, were, we were checking it out. Then we were going to go to our restaurant. And in the course of our little journey, um, you know, we got hungry. And we got grumpy. And we got irritable. And we started bickering. And, um, and then we got to the restaurant. And guess what? The restaurant was closed down. <laughs> so our blood sugar was plummeting. And the restaurant was closed. And we're already at each other's throats. And yet we know that uh, there's the, this same restaurant has a, um, another location uh, further up the coast, uh, up in the Santa Barbara area. So we just said, okay, let's just go. You know, we were kind of mad and let's, let's just, we got to go there. Um, but anyway, we went and we ate and then our attitudes changed and we were back in love and it was all, you know, so fun and enjoyable. But, but anyway, we, we ended up having this really amazing day. We, we, you know, we went down and we parked at the beach. We took a six mile walk. We just hung out. And then on the way home, we stopped and we got some, some, watermelon and some fruit, you know, all of this stuff. And we got home and at the end of the day, we just looked at each other and thought, wow, what, what an amazing day. How wonderful it is. You know, the relationship that we have. And, um, and, and she said, but you know, that, that one part wasn't that good. And I said, I know that, you know, you were kind of mean. And, uh, and, and then I smiled and winked, you know, I was joking, but all that long illustration to say, what is so wonderful is the relationship. Now, this is the point that I'm driving home here. God saved us for relationship. He saved us for relationship. If we're not enjoying the relationship with God that he saved us for, we're missing out on the point. And why do I say this? Because you know, it's easy. It happens over and over. It has happened historically. 
And it happened in the history of Israel, and it's happened in the history of the church, and it can happen in our lives as well. We can be the people of God who actually have a relationship with him, but we neglect it. We don't engage in it. We don't take full advantage of it. Instead, we settle for religious duty. Instead, we settle for uh, ritual and for rules and those kinds of things. God did not save us to get us to keep a bunch of rules. God saved us to bring us into intimate, personal relationship with him. That's what he saved us for. And through the relationship, he works in us and he works out from us and we do the right things. We do live in a way that pleases him, but it's rooted in the relational aspect. It's not that if I do these things, then, I, then I'm okay with God. That's religion. No, it's I have a relationship with God, and because I have a relationship with God, this is how that relationship impacts my life, and this is how I live. And so let us never lose sight of the fact that reconciliation was for the purpose of relationship. And I say this a lot. You know I say this a lot. But I cannot underestimate uh, the significance and the power of the relationship uh, component with the Lord. That's the thing. And, and, and it can get replaced by religion pretty quickly. It can get replaced easily by, by, again, duties and rules and things like that. No, we want to keep the relationship at the forefront. And so how do you keep the relationship at the forefront? Well, you, you spend time in the relationship. You develop it. You cultivate it. You, you know, talk to God. You, you speak to him in prayer. You sing to him in song. You, uh, you know, listen to him in his word. You see his work in the lives of his people. You see his work and you involve yourself in it. That's what it's like to be in a relationship. And that is primarily what it's all about. And then through our relationship with him, he wants to use us to reconcile others to himself. So we were created for relationships, as I'm saying, first with God and then with each other. But we know that many, many relationships are broken. Many relationships are fractured. Many are estranged from one another. Husbands and wives are estranged from one another. Uh, children and parents, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, races and cultures. And right now, it's like, it's like magnified. We have so much fracturing. We have so much estrangement. We have so much division. And it's like the, the culture itself is feeding off of division. You know, I, I look at where we are in the history of um, our nation, and I think it, it's so tragic that the people leading us politically, for example, are dividers rather than uniters. They're, they're people who are causing separation rather than reconciliation. 
And, uh, you know, obviously, if you're, if you're not reconciled to God, then it's, it's not all that likely you're going to be reconciled to your fellow human beings. But if you are reconciled to God, then it would stand to reason that, that we would be reconciled amongst ourselves. But, but even in the church, there's so much strife and contention and division and all of these things. But we need to come back to that place where we recognize that God has called us, he's reconciled us to himself, and he wants us to be a reconciling uh, force in the world. So the world's never gonna get reconciled. But the church is reconciled to God and we can be a reconciling agent in the world. And that's what we should be. We should be pointing people to reconciliation with God through Christ and then helping people reconcile with each other. But we, we need to be reconciled with, within ourselves. And so this, this is a moment in time, again, where uh, the church itself, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about racial reconciliation. How is that going to happen? Well, I think really the only way it can really genuinely happen is if Christ is involved, if Christians are involved, if Christians are the ones who are stepping up and looking, how can we be agents of reconciliation? But let me just say this. When Christ-centered reconciliation takes place, there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more wonderful. And I can think in my mind, just right off the top of my head, I could think of marriages that were just as far gone as you could imagine, seem like uh, irreversible, no way there could ever be restoration or reconciliation. I can think of people that God has reconciled and made their experience beautiful. It's amazing. That's what he does. Or family fractured families, how God puts things back together or broken friendships, whatever the case. And right on down through, you know, like I said, racial reconciliation, cultural distinctions, all of that stuff. This is what the power of the gospel is able to do. Now, we who have been reconciled to God actually have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Let me read you the great reconciliation text in the New Testament, although reconciliation is mentioned many times, the great text for it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Let me read it. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and listen, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, here it is. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sent for us or a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that amazing? Ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. We've been given. 
So we've been reconciled. We were formerly enemies, alienated. And we always have to remember that since that was my condition previously, and I am now reconciled to God, that means that those others who are still outside, who are still alienated, who are still in a place of, of actually being the enemies of God, I need to remember that that's where I once was, but now I'm here, and so I have to remember that God can reconcile them as well, and that he probably wants to use me in that process. Isn't it true that as the world gets darker, we tend to think that the, the cause of the gospel is, is more hopeless? Oh, people are so sinful. People are so rebellious. People are so angry. They're not going to hear. They're not going to listen. They don't want to know. We don't know that. As a matter of fact, it's, it's oftentimes in these very environments that we find ourselves in, it's in these environments that the gospel, the reconciling work of Christ has its greatest impact. So let's never forget what God has done for us, how he took us, how he reconciled us, and let's see how God would use us as ministers of reconciliation. Let's see how God would use us to bring others to a relationship with him through uh, our witness for Christ. Let's see how God would use us to bring reconciliation amongst other believers. And, and we, we've got a lot of division and strife and contention in the church today. How might God use us there? And how might God use the church? As I've quoted my friend James Meeks before, uh, I want to say it again, talking about racial reconciliation, he said racial reconciliation will not happen unless it happens through the church the church of Jesus. And the way it's going to happen through the church is if the church gets uh, out of the realm of politics and starts thinking more about the gospel itself and Jesus himself. You know, every time I talk about racial reconciliation, I get somebody in social media who is sending me a link to some conservative social pundit. They want me to listen to them because this conservative person is going to tell me why my thinking is wrong that, you know, we can have reconciliation on this. You know, I don't really care what the conservative social pundits say. I'm looking to what Jesus says. I'm looking to what the Bible says, the gospel says. And listen, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Conservatism is not the same as the gospel. It's not the same thing. And your most conservative commentators are not speaking for Jesus. They're speaking for their conservative philosophy. And so we have to get back to the scriptures and to God's heart. And he's the God of reconciliation and he's reconciled us. And he wants to use us, his people, the church, to bring reconciliation in the places where we see humanity fractured. And we don't have to look far to see that, do we? It's all around us. But the gospel is the answer. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have this wonderful gospel of reconciliation. We thank you, Lord, that you did this reconciling work because you are a relational God and you wanted us to come and be part of that relationship with you that, that you designed us to have. 
And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here on the grounds, if there's anyone watching, if there's anyone listening who is not yet reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, Lord, may today be the day. May they open their hearts and receive you. And Lord, may they know what it is to be reconciled and may you begin to use them as agents of reconciliation. And Lord, we just wanna pray for the church today as well. We are a part of the church. We're one expression of the church. But Lord, we think of the, the larger body of Christ across the land and we think of the strife and the contention and the division and all of those things. And Lord, you're the God who reconciles. And so we pray that there would be the repentance, the humility, the things that are needed um, so that we might become uh, reconciled to one another and that we might become that instrument of reconciliation in the culture. And Lord, we, we can all think of somebody right now that we long to see reconciled to you. Some family member, some friend, some acquaintance, somebody that we know that we think, Lord, reconcile them. You've done that, but bring them now to the experience of that. And so we pray for them and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.